This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio Powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us as we kick off the new year. We are featuring a series this month called 2019 A Look Ahead, and we're going to begin with a look at Brexit. That's the United Kingdom's move to leave the European Union. Prime Minister Theresa May had worked out a deal with the EU but couldn't get a majority within her own party to support it, particularly among hardline Brexiteers. A new vote is expected in the coming weeks, and in her New Year's message, Mrs. May called for the House of Commons support, saying it was, quote, the year we put our differences aside and move forward together, end quote. With the latest, we're joined here in studio by Brendan O'Leary, political uh, science professor here at the University of Pennsylvania. And on the phone with us is Michelle Egan, professor in the School of International Service at American University and a global fellow at the Wilson Center. Brendan, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Don. Thank you, Michelle. Great to have you with us today. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, too. So I, I guess let's start with that comment by Mrs. May, Brendan. And I think a lot of people would agree that, yes, we would hopefully put differences aside and move forward together. But with all of the different political elements in in the UK, it doesn't seem like that is going to be possible. It's not going to happen. Uh, the landscape looks almost wearyingly familiar. Uh, the only question is whether uh, Mrs. May's bill, as she, as she uh, still calls it, whether it has any prospect of uh, being put and whether or not um, there will be a sufficient number of conservatives sufficiently frightened to back it. But I think it's probably immaterial because the Democratic Unionist Party, the hardline uh, Unionist Party from Northern Ireland, has adamantly indicated it's not going to support Mrs May's bill. Without uh, the DUP, there isn't, uh, even if all conservatives were to obey, uh, she would need something like 10 or 12 Labour MPs to break from the ranks at, an op- uh, at a moment when Labour has an opportunity of breaking the government. So I don't think it's going to happen. Michelle, do you have any higher level of optimism than Brendan? No, I think this is almost like the movie Groundhog Day. We haven't moved anywhere from 2018 to 2019. We're going to have a lot of brinkmanship. We expect to go to the edge of the Article 50 deadline in March. And, you know, their question remains is why Labour in this point holding the cards, as Brendan pointed out, would want to support um, her deal. One of the things that May did not do, which if you look at previous failed referendums, if you like, in Denmark and Ireland, they had, um, they they basically got a national consensus before they went back to the negotiating table. Theresa May never did that. So the unity speech uh, in January at the new year is two years too late. We're joined by Brennan O'Leary of the University of Pennsylvania here in studio, Michelle Egan of American University. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866, or on Twitter at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Brennan, go ahead. Michelle is quite right. Um, Mrs. May lost an opportunity to build a cross-party consensus, and 
uh, if you'll recall, listeners may recall, just before Christmas, the reason May pulled the vote was that she was going to go around various European capitals yep. and the leadership of the European Union to win clarification on the meaning of the agreement, <laughs> particularly on uh, whether or not the backstop could be made in some sense temporary rather than permanent. There is absolutely no evidence that she got support uh, for that move on the part of the EU. And in fact, the way she went about it maximized the unlikelihood of her getting that. So that means she's not going to be able to present to Parliament evidence that the European Union is going to be flexible on that matter. So I don't see it shifting. So the question then becomes, as Michelle has implicitly raised, what does Parliament do in the uh, remaining interval? If we think about the, the period ahead, Mrs. May's strategy, such as it is, appears to be vote for this bill, otherwise you're going to have a hard exit. The clock will tick down until March the 29th and you'll be out and the EU will um, uh, have no agreement with, with the UK and everything will depend on World Trade Organization rules. So her calculation has to be that the fear of that scenario is going to bring her troops back into line. Right. If that isn't going to happen, then Parliament um, has to pull the plug on the government. It has to legislate uh, to stop the Article 50 process. And it would get the support of the EU to do that. Not only that, we now know as a result of a court ruling just before Christmas that the UK is entitled unilaterally to withdraw its application to withdraw uh, without needing the consent of all the other member states. So that option is there. And the question is, will Parliament take advantage of it? And if it does, what's it going to do? So what do you think the, the odds are at this point that that scenario may actually play out, that all of this work uh, over uh, the last couple of years may go for naught and there's no Brexit at all? I think it's highly likely. Um, all the UK media still seem to be talking as if Mrs. May has a decent prospect of getting her bill through. I see no rational reason for that belief. Given that, uh, we have to assess the parliamentary situation, and it's one in which there is a majority still among MPs who endorsed Remain as their uh, most preferred outcome. And that majority must be presumed to not want a hard exit. In which case, if May's bill goes, then, then they have to do something. And the most obvious thing is uh, are, 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 there are two obvious options. One is to trigger a general election because clearly Her Majesty's sure. government does not command the support of the House. Yeah. Uh, the second is to go for a referendum. Either would require um, rescinding Article 50 uh, until such time as it was clear that there was a new government or until the outcome of a second referendum was known. Michelle, your thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, there are a number of scenarios being put forward by various press, media and pundits. And in some ways, those scenarios are often, well, the British can do this without a sort of notion that there are other players involved. No deal. The government has late December published a massive report on ramping up its no-deal preparations. It's unfathomable to me that you are expending resources on both a May deal and planning for a transition and expending resources on a no-deal. And, you know, you're using your civil service and your resources for a, a two-headed option. 
The second issue is there is supposed to be a meaningful debate or vote in mid-January. And I've heard people say, well, what about we put a vote at a later date? What difference does that make for May's deal? And thirdly, people are saying, we can negotiate further with the EU. I mean, Corbyn is saying, well, you know, pick me because I can go back to the EU. What's forgotten is that many European states this year, we're talking about 2019, have their own domestic elections. And we have the European Parliament also going through its electoral cycle. They're done. They've negotiated. They have a 500-page manuscript. Um, they don't want to reopen it because they've got their own domestic concerns. There, there was an interesting piece, uh, Michelle, that I saw recently that at, when looking at the entity that is the United Kingdom, actually brought forth the suggestion of whether or not the UK was having uh, a little bit of trouble trying to, stray, uh, to stay together at this point, with obviously the concerns that Scotland has and also Ireland as well. Absolutely. I mean, this was the issue from the very beginning, is that the British decided to vote uh, or to negotiate as a union. Um, And remember, a lot of the Conservative Party have been unionists. And um, the Conservative Party's presence in Scotland has been decimated for very long. And so there was a feeling by Scotland and by others that they did not represent uh, all constituencies given devolution. And, you know, this has come to pass. We've seen a real uh, concern, and it's the, the court case, you know, that came up for the ECJ was initiated by, uh, from Scotland. So this is not a, um, you know, this is something that, and I think in some ways the Scottish feel, and I would argue betrayed, because they agreed to stay in the Scottish referendum with Britain, and then they've now been um, hit with this, we are leaving the EU. Michelle is quite right. We also have the bizarre spectacle in Northern Ireland that the uh, largest party there, which does not command a majority, is deeply rejecting the backstop proposal, which is at the heart of Mrs. May's difficulties. And that backstop proposal, on any rational appraisal, is magnificent for Northern Ireland. If we leave aside the fact that Northern Ireland has been taken outside of the European Union against its will, the provisions of the backstop would enable Northern Ireland to have the best of both worlds, full membership of the UK, access to its full markets, and full membership of the European Union, unlike the rest of Great Britain, were it to materialise. So we have not only the paradox of the alleged leading party of business, leading business off a cliff in Great Britain, we have the party of the Union in Northern Ireland doing something which materially damages Northern Ireland. If I I may go back to something that Michelle mentioned earlier, the UK government's preparations for no exit simply lack credibility. While you and I were having our uh, Christmas dinner uh, and uh, enjoying the subsequent celebrations, a story came out in the UK uh, newspapers that the Ministry of Transport had given uh, contracts to a company to run ferries if, if in the event of difficulties from a hard exit, right. th- they would be able to supply additional ferries. This company has no record of ever having run any shipping organization throughout the entirety of its history. And the Ministry of Transport (laughs) is claiming, nevertheless, that it was an intelligent and sensible contingency form of planning. Now, the British press is full of these stories. Businesses are stockpiling 
These are the businesses that uh, care about uh, just-in-time integrated supply chains having yeah. to go back to backward methods of, of management. We've had three successive quarters in which UK uh, net investment has fallen. Yeah. This, this cannot hold the, this particular picture. Whistling in the wind isn't going to isn't going to do it. So I, I strongly expect that the conjunction of economic pressures uh, and the absence of support for, for this overall agreement uh, will either bring down the government or trigger a referendum. And, and, and either of those processes, I think, end in a, in a general election at some juncture. And Michelle, Brennan brings up a, a good aspect to touch on is the economic side. We talk a lot about this from the political side for, for such a long period of time. But the economic impacts uh, of not getting this through uh, are, are rather significant. That's right. There are estimates that there are about 230 plus, you know, trade agreements or various different economic arrangements that the British will, if they want access, have to negotiate. Right now, they've done about 14. And Brendan is right that they're stockpiling in things like medicines. There's talk about stockpiling of food. How do you stockpile food when it will rot? Tins, Michelle. We'll go back to tins. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, Bully and, you know, beef. Remember that the British, and as a historical footnote, the British actually had rationing uh, after the Second World War till 1955. They still had ration books. And so, you know, the notion that we're going to, to do this, you know, there's a sense that, you know, the British have market access and all of a sudden they're going to face, if they have a no deal, tariffs, checks, registrations, certifications on a whole range of commodities, food, yep. feed, plants, animal products. And, you know, it's not just a cost and difficulty for small and medium business, large business who want to export. It's also the fact that, you know, the Netherlands, Ireland, um, well, less Ireland, but, but the Netherlands and um, France, they're all beefing up their own border security and patrols. And then not only do we have the economic dimension, but we're having talks now about what happens to the EU nationals in the UK. Yeah. And I have long felt that Theresa May's sort of previous experiences, um, effectively what we would call homeland security, you know, um, home minister, has really framed her view about Brexit. This is about controlling migration. So it's the, it, Michelle is correct. It's the first time in UK history where you have a prime minister who has no previous background, whether in government or in opposition, in anything to do with the general economy. Her background has been that of uh, security. And that has made her zealously focused on the question of migration and blocking free movement. And it's that in conjunction with the Northern Ireland question which accounts for the weird contours of the eventual uh, withdrawal agreement that she did negotiate with the EU. So if she wants flexibility, uh, ending uh, those uh, inhibitions on free movement and having a Norway-style deal are still in principle available to her. But I think the interesting feature of the last couple of weeks uh, reading the British press is I think the Remainers are getting confident, and they're getting so confident that they want to eliminate the Norway option. That's an option in which the UK would remain in the customs union and in the single market right. and pay its full entitlements. And the only freedom from EU functions would be confined to agriculture and fisheries. 
and I think the reason the Remainers want to do that is because obviously it means that the UK is a policy taker and out of the EU. But it also means they're confident that if it goes to a second referendum, that they think they can win it and win it decisively. The moving back and forth by by people, Michelle, uh, from the... Uh, from the UK to uh, to Europe, obviously, is, is has been an inc- important component for uh, for the last couple of decades, uh, and that becomes, as you kind of alluded to, an important component that is not going to be there uh, if if we don't have some sort of decision in the next couple of months. And a lot of people really wanted this ring fence because they didn't want people who reside in Europe who are British within the EU or those EU nationals in the UK to be kind of a a bargaining chip. And so what the British government has done is it has said anybody who is currently an EU national in the UK will have to apply for settled status. They will formally have to apply to reside. That doesn't include people who might come on vacation or temporarily. This will be people who currently are in the UK. So we're already treating EU nationals differently by more or less saying to them, your status has changed. What's important to realize is that when we look at UK nationals within the 27 member states, and this is primarily in countries like Spain or France, for example, who might be retirees, that decision about what their status is, whether they can have access to health care or various other residential rights, that's decided by the domestic policies of the individual member states. Now, Spain has already said, we will have some reciprocity here. But Basically, we are leaving the number of UK citizens in Europe up to the different rules and regulations within those nation states. So this was never resolved. It feels punitive. And there's always a sense that I feel in the British press and the general, some of the general public, that they've confused EU nationals who have freedom of movement with asylum and refugee. And the issues are different. Indeed, and it's uh, decades of political manipulation on that question uh, coming home to roost. The conflation of freedom of movement within the EU, uh, immigration from outside the EU, refugees and and asylum seekers. Uh, Just just to switch the topic slightly uh, with other um, scare stories that have materialized, one of the most intriguing that caught my eye was that uh, the Northern Ireland Police Service, the Police Service of Northern Ireland, have issued a request for information on appropriate experts for riot control (laughs) after the UK leaves the European Union. Now, that, I think, is a signal of the kinds of concerns that are are prevalent in in various uh, institutions that are are making preparations. Northern Ireland, as a result, largely, of uh, this exit process, doesn't have a functioning government, and it is about to be taken out of... uh, United out of the European Union against its will. And if the backstop arrangement is not put in place, it means that Northern Ireland is going to suffer materially and therefore the police are anticipating the possibility of riots. Of course, I hope it doesn't come to this, but that tells you the level of panic thinking that is uh, presently occurring. Michelle? Absolutely. And we just need to talk as well about the the domestic politics and the fear of uh, 
elections coming up in the rest of Europe, so they don't want to renegotiate this. They need to move on. The crisis of the economy in Italy, the elections coming up in Portugal and other places. And finally, the sort of the local elections in Britain um, will also be a political bellwether. What will happen if with conservative losses? And the Labour Party are also facing the difficulty that they're starting to see a surge amongst their grassroots for a second referendum. Now, the question is, we've got angry politics, divided politics. We have a prime minister in limbo. When I said Groundhog Day, I feel like I'm watching this, 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 you know, prime minister teeter on the brink. But, you know, the question that the conservatives have to ask themselves is, um, you know, if there is a vote of no confidence, if there is, a, a, you know, possibly a general election, who's going to lead the charge? Brandon? Well, Mrs. May has uh, previously indicated that she will be going before a general election, but I, I didn't think she had in mind an immediate departure right. in, yes. in January. Yeah. So they would have they would face a very serious problem. Having a leadership contest in the middle of a general election campaign is unlikely, even in the fa- even given the fact that we're facing the unlikeliest of scenarios. Michelle is right to signal that Labour is a is a key question. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn has always preferred to be outside of the European Union. He regards it as a, a capitalist regime. Uh, it's very clear that the, the bulk of Labour's supporters favour uh, a second referendum and favour remaining. The paradox is that the key constituencies that are the heartland of Labour's support in the north uh, largely voted to leave though their enthusiasm for leaving um, has uh, somewhat attenuated. So it's a very difficult question for Labour. If you like, the paradox is this. The, the more educated, the more bourgeois you are, the more likely you are to favour remain. Yeah. The less educated, the poorer you are, the more likely you are to favour leave. And that cross-cuts the party's traditional um, positions. So if Labour wants to make a a further electoral leap, in my view, it's completely rational for it to switch to being in favour of a second referendum. Let the people decide and let individual Labour candidates decide whether they want to back, remain or leave. And by putting themselves in that position, I think they would then get a very significant sway of tactical votes from Liberal Democrat supporters and from Conservatives, which would probably lead to a Remain win and a subsequent Labour electoral victory. When you hear those comments that you mentioned from Jeremy Corbyn, how on point is he when he calls that a capitalist society? And you have mentioned to me about the fact that you know being part of the EU is kind of a partnership that you never leave without feeling significant pain. Sure. Um, I, there is no question that the EU places constraints over uh, member states, in particular over state aid to certain kinds of industries. But there are there is flexibility within the European Union, provided you're not setting up a permanent Uh, state monopoly that excludes competition from other member states, you can do a great deal. You can do a great deal to transform the internal organization of major private sector organizations. There's no reason why individual member states can't uh, legislate to have workers on the board to increase trade union participation over over investment decisions and so on. There's a whole slew of activities that are classically in the domain of socialist and social democratic preferences that, to my knowledge, are not illegal under right. European law. So one of the questions that 
Jeremy Corbyn has to be called out on is precisely what in the EU prevents you from doing what you declare already that right. you want to do. Right. And one of the things people could do is go through Labour's last manifesto and check it for compatibility with European law. Michelle? Absolutely. If nothing else, you know, their current sort of comments about the Jeremy Corbyn is we have to at least acknowledge that his position has been consistent. I believe he voted against the 1973 joining. He certainly voted against the Maastricht Treaty in 1992. So his position has always been um, Eurosceptic. So we should not be surprised that he's taking the position he is doing, and he's talking about leading Britain out of the EU. I mean, one of the things to realize is just how ironic it is that the EU has been the most, the issue that has internally divided both the Conservative and the Labour Party. I think the new Labour repressed the EU question in the Labour Party, and now they're having to return to it. So I do think that um, Jeremy Corbyn's position should not come as a surprise to anybody. So what do you expect to see play out here in the next several weeks as we get closer to the March 29th uh, deadline, Michelle? Well, what difference does it make if Theresa May postpones her vote on her um, you know, deal? It, we've got angry politics, divided politics, and a prime minister in limbo. Um, the EU is not moving. There is no cross-party coordination. The question will be almost the brinkmanship. At what point do you go so close to the deadline that you have a scenario that, you know, as Brendan pointed out, the those who want to remain are getting more confident that perhaps we will pull back on the brink. I think that um, the EU will, whatever decision Britain makes, and if Britain does crash out, which people are seeing as increasingly unlikely, the concern that I have is, do you really want to go into negotiation with the EU when you have messed them around yeah. for the last two years? That's not very good for any form of trust, both in the future if you go back and if you crash out. Brent? I, I don't foresee future negotiations. I, I foresee the, the distinct possibility of a referendum or um, a crashing out. And if the referendum takes place, I think Remain will leave, depending on how the, the question is, is worded. And the Remain campaign would be very simple. We go back on the previous existing terms, we apologize to our European partners, yeah. and we go forward. We do not seek to renegotiate uh, the position. And all of the uh, small minor matters that Cameron negotiated, they're dead in the water. Uh, Britain would be returning to the position it was in in, in 2014. Great having you here. Thanks Thank very you, much. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.